Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I am Alex Lawson, and I am down Amber McKinney, and I am down Haley Knopf this week, which means we are reaching deep into the bag, although not that deep. He is an OG producer of the show, a fine podcast talent in his own right. It is Law 360 producer, Stephen Trader. Welcome to the host chair, sir. It's great to be here, Alex. Thank you so much. You guys really are reaching deep today. I don't know what to tell you, but... I'm going to give it my best shot. I mean, you were the logical choice, uh, which is to say you have history with the show. And most importantly, you have a, uh, uh, a remote audio rig that can give us uh, podcast quality <laughs> sounds. So really, it wasn't much of a choice at all, to be honest. <laughs> Just a couple of Chicago boys. We're going to try and not turn this into Chicago sports talk radio podcast. We'll keep it legal today. But no, well, actually, before before we decided on bringing you into the host chair, I was thinking about doing like the Colin Cowherd, Mike Francesa sports radio model, just a half hour of me solo doing legal news. But that doesn't really work in this format, I don't think. I could just add sound effects if you want. I'll let you do your thing, and then I'll just like drop in with uh, you know a co-host line here and there. But Oh, I've, I've been advocating for that for years, to make it like a morning zoo, like morning drive with the like movie quote drops and the, and the zany circus sounds. But Yeah, I, I, I forgot to... Uh, cue my toilet flush um, <laughs> if you want to give me a second. Uh, no. Uh, well, again, something to something to strive toward. Um, but we do have an awesome show for you this week. Later on, I will be talking with Columbia Business School professor Vicki Morowitz, and we were talking about a new proposed rule issued by the Federal Trade Commission this week, which deals with what are known as junk fees. And if you've booked a hotel reservation or bought a concert ticket or rented a car, or anything like that, you know what we're talking about. These are sort of fees, mandatory fees, whose true value is can be hidden or redirected from the consumer until, until like the point of purchase. And this is like, this is something that the, that the FTC sees as sort of very deceptive uh, and wrong. And there was a new proposal to kind of take it on. Vicki Morowitz studies this issue from so, you know, in a way that's a little bit unusual from our normal guests, we talked a little bit about the effect that these pricing policies have on consumer behavior and kind of what to watch for as this process rolls along and try to try to craft new rules to address it. So um, definitely stick around for that. It was uh, uh, quite an interesting chat. Yeah, it was, Alex. That, and um, definitely an issue that hits close to home. Everything that Vicky was saying, you can think about as a consumer and how you behave yourself. So Really interesting to listen to her. Uh, stick around for that. But let's get to some news first. Alex, I think you are kicking us off with our first story here. Yes, indeed. And there is, um, we have two really, really fun ones for you here. Um, because uh, we'll start with, don't go running for the, for the pause button here. Because we are talking about a discovery dispute. Which can be, you know, discovery can be tedious and boring by design. Rifling through millions of documents. But it's only boring until it's not. And this is quite, quite strange uh, and, and, and quite eyebrow-raising. So the law firm Robbins Kaplan was handed a six-figure fine and excoriated by a New York State judge for what he described as rummaging through a Dropbox file of this company that it was litigating against after it was accidentally given access to these documents by a third party. And it's a it's a dispute that appears to be without precedent in the long history of discovery squabbles, and the judge even held open the possibility that Robbins Kaplan uh, could face more consequences as a result and had some, some very stern words for the firm, which is always going to be catnip for us. 
Yeah, this is one of our favorite segments, Lawyers Behaving Badly. And uh, spelunking in the Dropbox, that's some juicy stuff. So what are, the, what are the details on this one here? So in the underlying case, Robbins Kaplan is representing a litigation funder that is in a dispute against one of its investors. And the investor is an entity that is called the Pursuit Special Credit Opportunity Fund. We will just be referring to them as Pursuit for the sake of clarity on this segment. But what you need to know is that during the course of this, this suit being filed, Pursuit's administrator, which is a, a third-party entity, shared discovery with both sides. And among that discovery dump included 20 emails that contained within it an old link to a Dropbox account where, the, where Pursuit, the investment fund, had stored basically all of its corporate internal files. That link still worked. And while Robbins Kaplan partner Gabriel Berg said that he did not access a tab in the files that was labeled legal because he thought that that would sort of inherently contain privileged material, he viewed the rest of Pursuit's accidental corporate disclosure as basically open for his viewing. In various filings to the court and statements to the court when this uh, rose to the judge's attention, he said that it's not our fault here at Robbins Kaplan that Pursuit was too casual about securing these sensitive corporate files, and it's, it's basically fair game for me to look at those. Berg waited a week to inform opposing counsel that he had obtained access to the files, and then he defended his conduct to the court, basically saying that not only did he not commit an ethical violation, but in fact, it was part of his obligation to serve his client's interests that he should make use of these materials once he had access to them. So he said, not only did I not do anything wrong, it would have been wrong to do nothing. So that catches us up there. Yeah, this one caught our attention yesterday when we were talking about it a little bit. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to betray myself a little bit as not a lawyer and having not gone to legal school. But I guess in my mind, it was, you know, all's fair and love and litigation. You know, if you get this, <laughs> get access to this, it's like, hey, how was I supposed to know that I wasn't supposed to look at this or use this, you know? But um Clearly, the judge took a different view, and I am incorrect in my thoughts on that. What did the <laughs> judge say about this? It honestly raised to mind that scandal in baseball from a couple of years ago, and that guy for the Cardinals went to a different team, and they, they, they just didn't change the passwords when he left, and he kept accessing <laughs> like internal databases. Not a one-to-one. -one. It's a completely different context, so I don't want to lean too much on that. But anyway, to the question you asked, yes, the judge did not think this was okay and not even close, uh, not even like a close ethical call in his mind. This fell to the desk of New York State Judge Joel Cohen, and he said basically flat out that Robbins Kaplan should have ceased accessing the files the moment that they realized that they were inadvertently given to them. And instead, he said that the directory was, quote, surreptitiously and repeatedly accessed by counsel and their client under circumstances that should have raised professional alarm bells, loud ones. So he thinks these are quite loud alarm bells that should have been set off. And the judge said that rummaging through a company's remotely linked computer files is well beyond the scope of legitimate discovery and that attorneys should have known that. And he even went so far as to say that as he viewed it, this conduct is more akin to corporate espionage, albeit with a, you know, Without a forceful entry, a forceful break-in, it was an accident. But to make matters worse, the judge also accused Berg, the Robbins-Kaplan uh, partner, of trying to, what he called, weaponize the documents by drafting a letter to Pursuit's attorneys 
suggesting that within the files, he had found evidence that the company was like committing fraud on the court and maybe even fraud on its own lawyers and, you know, suggesting that the company should drop the case, which if read a certain way, seems like blackmail. <laughs> it's like, you know, it would be a shame if the court were to find out about this stuff. Um, <laughs> but anyway, he was not cool with it. To your point, Steve, uh, he fined Robbins Kaplan $156,000 um, and he ordered the firm to destroy any documents that it accessed that it would not have otherwise received through legitimate discovery channels. He also said that future discovery requests in the suit from Robbins Kaplan could be restricted or curtailed if he believes that they were based on information that they gleaned from this inappropriate Dropbox incursion, which he referred to quite lyrically as the fruit of the poisonous tree, which I, uh, which I quite liked. <laughs> That's strong language there. Yeah, yeah you, you can't really. It's one thing if you're saying, hey, look, I, I saw this and I thought I was able to use it. It's quite another if you're going to turn that into, as the judge said, weaponize it. So what should we be looking out for here as this one proceeds? I mean, is there anything else coming down the line here? Yeah, so I thought it was interesting. I, this this is the kind of thing that doesn't crack like, you know, the New York Times front page stuff, but made the rounds in the legal press and the Robbins Kaplan attorney, Gabriel Berg, was pretty forceful in his statements. He vowed to appeal the decision, saying that in 25 years of practicing law, he's never been sanctioned by the court or been served with any kind of ethics-related grievance. He stands by this conduct, said he looks forward to appealing it. He told our own Jessica Corso and other reporters who reported on this, that all the documents that, rep that were referenced in his letter urging pursuit to drop the case were eventually revealed through normal discovery channels and that something close to 92% of the docs in this disputed Dropbox link uh, also came to light through regular means. So he thought that the severity of his conduct was somewhat overstated by the court. Um, as of now, though, and, and we'll, we'll definitely keep an eye on this appeal as it moves through the court, but... As it stands now, it's a pretty big black eye for him and for the firm, and I think um, quite a teachable moment for um, any lawyers out there who are often mired in the discovery process. So, uh, like I say, a teachable moment. Well, staying similarly in that vein for our second story today, we're following up on our Lawyers Behaving Badly segment with our second favorite tangentially related Judges behaving badly yeah. or, or questionably, at least. Uh, I'll leave it to you to decide. But uh, for this one, we are heading to U.S. Bankruptcy Court down in Houston, where this week it came to light that one of the busiest bankruptcy judges in the country has been in a romantic relationship with a former partner at a firm that routinely appeared in his court during corporate restructuring proceedings. He did not disclose it until this past weekend nor did he ever recuse himself from any proceeding involving the firm. Again, this sounds like some hacky cable legal drama or like something on suits. I don't know. Um, but it, uh, it, it does not sound like the kind of stuff you want a judge or a, a bankruptcy judge to be uh, getting involved in. Let's get a little more into the, uh, into the details here. Yeah, so the judge's name is David R. Jones. And as I mentioned, he is one of the busiest bankruptcy judges in the country. Houston is a hotspot for some of the largest Chapter 11 cases, and Judge Jones himself, since 2016, has overseen 11% of all Chapter 11 bankruptcies involving more than $100 million in liabilities, so quite a few cases. Over the weekend, 
Jones confirmed to the Wall Street Journal that he, for years, has shared a home and is in a relationship with a woman named Elizabeth Freeman, who, until late 2022, was a partner at Jackson Walker. Now, Jackson Walker is a Houston-based firm that specializes in bankruptcy on its own, but it's better known for providing local counsel for some of the largest and most prolific firms that handle large corporate bankruptcies down in that area. So, Suffice it to say that many Jackson Walker cases have appeared before Judge Jones. Again, sort of a pretty cut and dry conflict type of thing that you would think a judge would would know to either recuse or flag to the court or whatever the case might be. I am curious to know, though, how um, all of this came to light. You mentioned that there was Wall Street Journal reporting on this, um, but let's let's get into a little bit more about the how this sort of came to be known. Yeah, so it, it, it surfaced actually late last week when an individual plaintiff named Michael Van Dielen sued Judge Jones over rulings he issued back in 2020 uh, in a bankruptcy case of offshore drilling company McDermott International. So Kirkland and Ellis represented McDermott in that proceeding, and Freeman's firm, Jackson Walker, served as local counsel. So Van Dielen is a McDermott shareholder who had unsuccessfully pursued a number of claims against the company in bankruptcy court. And his latest lawsuit that he filed last week, specifically against Judge Jones, mentioned this relationship, brought it out into the public. And Van Dielen alleges that Jones and Freeman's romantic relationship uh, amounted to a conflict of interest that tainted his rulings. And you can understand what he's saying there. Exactly what was the nature of the way the judge, you already mentioned that he, he confirmed the existence of this relationship with this partner to the Wall Street Journal. I mean, what did he, what did he actually say about it? Was he trying to justify? Was, what did he comment on exactly? Yeah, so they called wind of this lawsuit, the Wall Street Journal did, and um, they reached out to him for comment and actually and got him on the record uh, where he admitted that he and Freeman share a home and have long been romantic partners uh, but he said that he and Freeman agreed years ago that she herself would never appear in his courtroom, which she allegedly hasn't. And so Jones said that he didn't believe that the relationship needed to be disclosed. He pointed out that the two aren't married and there is no economic benefit to him from her legal work. He owns the home that they reside in and he pays all expenses on the home. So he's not getting anything from her that, you know, in his mind goes toward him not being able to hear a case fairly, um, he went on to further say that he actually thought that disclosing the relationship would cause even more harm because it would create the perception that anyone appearing before him should go out and hire Jackson Walker as their counsel because of his connection, which is kind of a weird argument to make. If you're saying that, then you know that there might be a, yeah. a, a connection there. But, That's what um, I was about to say. I was like, well, wait a second. If, there, if there's no problem... And, and like, it's actually good to keep it a secret. This is kind yeah. of an analog to the to the Robbins Kaplan guy who was like, actually, I did the exactly correct thing. Yeah. So here's here's a quote from the judge. Quote, if for any reason I thought that I should have done something more, I would have done it. I'm certainly not afraid of my relationship. I just simply think I'm entitled to a certain degree of privacy. I and I alone made the call that so long as she never appeared in front of me, that was sufficient. And so Judge Jones hasn't formally responded to Van Dielen's claims in court. He didn't comment on the lawsuit specifically in the article, but he reiterated that he was under no obligation to recuse from any case involving Freeman's firm or even from cases involving Freeman's new solo firm, 
which she launched in December 2022. So he's not really backing down from this. When we're on the ethics beat, like we are pretty heavily on this week's episode, we do have to have a discussion about one thing that really jumped out to me when you were laying out the facts there is that he and Freeman decided that she would never appear in court. And like, that's, that's just something that they made unilaterally and never consulted any type of ethics expert or notified the court, as I, as I already said. And he explained why, which we've already talked about. But Yeah, and it, it's just easier anyway, well, you know, you just know, to discuss. What are we going to do, get yourself. lawyers involved here? Don't we have enough of that? Um, no, but I mean, have any ethics experts offered commentary here? Is there any sense of like how the legal community views this or disciplinary recourse or anything like that? Well, the article mentions that the Judicial Council for the Fifth Circuit uh, didn't specifically comment for the story. Um, but uh, in the days since this was first reported, a number of ethics experts have weighed in and sort of collectively have gone, uh, what? Uh, most notably this guy adam leventon he's a bankruptcy professor and an expert at georgetown law and uh, he's appeared in a couple of different publications that have followed up on this and he said that this shouldn't be a hard call at all Uh, you have to recuse (laughs) if there's even a reasonable question of your impartiality so funny enough that's actually what the code of conduct for u.s judges says as well Get out of here. The code requires a judge to recuse from cases if there's a question of impartiality, particularly where a spouse represents a party in litigation or might otherwise have an interest in the outcome of the case. Well, okay, so they're not married, so perhaps the judge has a point there. That's a real fine line. But there have actually been recent amendments to that code which clarify that any recusal considerations that are applicable to a spouse should also be considered with respect to a person other than a spouse whom the judge maintains both a household and or an intimate relationship. So I'm just certain that we haven't heard the last about this. I have to imagine that this caught the attention of the Judicial Council, and we'll have to wait and see if there's any formal comment or really if this lawsuit against Judge Jones gains any traction. But uh, yeah, much to look forward to on this one, and uh, can't wait to see what happens. If you've been listening to the Pro Se Podcast, you know how much the legal industry is talking about artificial intelligence. And that may have you thinking, will AI cut into my revenue? If you're looking for ways to unlock hidden revenue in your practice, check out Overture. What's Overture? It's an attorney-to-attorney referral platform that's ethical and also easy. Generate referral fees for the matters you can't service by handing them off to vetted attorneys. If AI has you worried, tap into the revenue you've been passing up by checking out Overture.law today. That's not .com, it's Overture.law. The Federal Trade Commission is moving forward with a proposal to curtail companies' use of what are commonly referred to as junk fees that can cost customers upwards of $80 million a year. The proposed rule would require companies to be more transparent about the extra charges they apply to concert tickets, hotel bookings, and other purchases. The rule marks the latest turn in the government's long-running effort to clean up what it views as a transparently deceptive business practice. Joining Pro Se this week is Columbia Business School professor Vicki Morwitz. 
whose research into consumer behavior has informed much of the government's push to knock down junk fees. Welcome to the show, Vicki. Thank you. It's great to have you here, and you've done a lot of interesting writing on this topic that I think is a little bit unique from what we normally do on the show, so I'm excited to get into it. But I want to, I think it's important to lay out some basics. I gave a very surface level um, explanation of kind of what's in play here, but can you give us some examples of the types of fees and charges and business practices that the FTC is looking to rein in with this new rule? Sure. There's, there's a wide range of them as they've been really proliferating in recent years. Uh, uh, an example you hear a lot about is in the hotel industry. Uh, there's been an increasing use of something that's sometimes called a resort fee. It might be called an urban fee, a destination fee. That's part of the confusion is different labels are used for the same thing. Um, it is a mandatory fee. So you're searching for a hotel. You find out the daily room rate. You know there's taxes on top of that. Uh, but in, these hotels also have a mandatory resort fee. Sometimes you're told that covers something like bottles of water or internet or access to the gym. But the thing is, you have to pay it whether or not you use those things. And many of those things used to be included in the daily room rate, like access to the gym, maybe coffee in your room. Um, so now they're separated out. Um, and that makes it difficult for consumers because not all hotels have them. They're not all the same amount. It, it makes search difficult. That's one example. Uh, shopping for tickets is another one that's gotten a lot of attention. So maybe you're searching online for a ticket to a, a sports event or a live theater, um, and you you pick your seat, you, you find out what the ticket for that seat costs. But as you keep clicking through the pages, there might be booking fees, facility fees, you know, number of different fees that show up. Some of them are per ticket, some of them are per order. And by the time you're done, maybe the total ticket price is 30, 40, 50% higher than you anticipated. Again, these are mandatory fees. Uh, the rental car industry is another one. There might be, you're renting a car from the airport. There might be an airport concession recovery fee, uh, battery licensing fees, you know, wide, wide range of fees, again, mandatory. We also see optional fees, like with the airlines. It used to be you bought your ticket and that included your baggage and a seat reservation. And now those things have been unbundled. Mm -hmm. This is something that I, you know, to your point, it, these practices exist in industries that, you know, we all use to, to, to some extent for another. So it's a very easy entry point, you know, even if you don't follow it on a, on a, on a policymaking level the way that you do. But you have done a lot of writing and a lot of lecturing about the psychological effects that pricing strategies like this have on consumers, which I find very fascinating. Um, can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. We, we've studied um, two different pricing strategies. There's re the related. Uh, one we call partition pricing, which was is when a firm decides to, they could offer an all-inclusive price, but they decide to divide it into a base price and a mandatory surcharge. And the way we studied partition pricing that mandatory surcharge didn't have to be hidden in the small print or even dripped on later pages of search. It's just the mere act of separating it. And we show that the mere act of separating a base price and a mandatory surcharge, on average, uh, that, that mere act leads consumers to underestimate the total price and in many cases become more likely to buy. And there's a variety of reasons why, uh, but largely we argue they kind of anchor, pay attention to that base price that's bigger, that seems more salient, seems more relevant. And while they may know there are some additional fees, they don't adjust sufficiently to take them into consideration. 
Another thing we studied that's related is uh, what the FTC has called drip pricing. And that's when you first see a base price, like I talked about in uh, you shopping for a ticket and you mm-hmm. look for a seat and there's what you see a base price. And then, uh, you know, as you're clicking through the pages, additional surcharges are revealed. And as the FTC defines drip pricing, those could be either for mandatory surcharges like a resort fee, but they could also be for optional add-ons. And, and what we found and, and what others have found with drip pricing is it, it makes search more difficult for consumers. It makes consumers more likely to pick an option that appears cheaper up front, but ends up being more expensive than an alternative they could have chosen. And that even when they can, even when they see that total, they, they pick the option, they, they see there's additional fees, they now see it's more expensive than they anticipated, we find that tends to be sticky. Consumers, even when given the opportunity to restart search, tend not to. And there's a whole lot of psychological reasons why. But in general, they tend to overestimate the cost of, of resuming search and underestimate the benefit of doing so. Yeah, I can I can see, and I'm I'm by no means, you know, an expert in that area. That's why we have you on after all. But you can see like the general shape of like, well, I've gone this far. They're hitting me with a few other fees. I'm basically almost here close to pulling the trigger on this like pretty expensive thing and I'll just go with it. That's I mean, am, am I kind of grasping the concept there correctly? I think that's a lot of it. It's like kind of a sunk cost of having invested so much time in search. There's also uh, people have an incorrect belief that, well, probably the other options have those fees too. Yeah. So, you know, why bother? And I think in the real market, uh, we didn't do this in our studies, but in the real marketplace, firms of, often also throw out scarcity cues that put us under pressure to close the deal. So we might see something like two tickets left at that price, or yeah, there might be a little sure. countdown clock in the corner of the website or the app. Um, and then we want, you know, we think, well, if I search a little harder to find something cheaper, I might lose this good thing I found and I might end up worse off. So that's a very good way to, to, to think about, you know, how these policies, these charges and fees, you know, affect our behavior as consumers. And now we have this rule from the government. It's uh, quite a detailed proposal, but can you just basically say in some terms, you know, what exactly is the government's remedy to this problem? It's easy to just say, you should not do stuff like this, but like, you know, what do they say about the way companies should comport themselves? Sure. My understanding of it is there there are two things they're advocating for. The first is that firms can no longer separate out mandatory fees. So the the price we see up front should be the total price, uh, as opposed to this partitioning or dripping that we talked about. And and this has to do with mandatory fees, not these optional add-ons that consumers may or may not want, but but the ones that you're going to have to pay no matter what. So if you're going to have to pay it no matter what, it should just be bundled in the mm-hmm. price. So that's that's the first. The second is sometimes part of what makes this all so difficult for consumers is the labels for these surcharges can be hard to understand or misleading. What is a convenience fee? What what <laughs> convenience do I get from that? Yeah, yeah. Um, what is a concession recovery fee? Is that a tax from the government? Is that something <laughs> the company's passing their costs on to the consumer. And so so the second one is that um, they have to accurately represent what the fees stand for. Um, They can't misrepresent them. That's what's very interesting to me because, I mean, I can definitely understand the concept of like, okay, if there are mandatory fees that you're just going to be charging no matter what, that needs to be in the display price, which you just, which you literally just said. But I think the 
I think the trickier thing to going forward is like to like more accurately describe them and and describe them in ways that are like accessible to a consumer at the point of purchase, which you know is like kind of half the battle here. I'm I'm very intrigued to see how that will play out. This is just a proposed rule. Um, you know, there there will be comments and things like this, and I know you uh, are not. You know, you you described yourself. We were talking before the show about you know sort of not always on the policy side, more on on the sort of underpinnings of of the effect of these policies. But you know, what are you going to be looking for as this moves forward? I mean, do you think that there are things that can be made clearer in this proposal, or do you anticipate pushback from the business lobby? Or I'm kind of just curious to know, you know, what you think the next steps here will be. Yeah, I mean, I'll be interesting. It, it was interesting to see the comments that have come in so far initially, and it'll be interesting to see the comments that come in at this stage. I anticipate consumers will say, this is great. <laughs> we want it. <laughs> yes. uh, and across the board, I don't think this is partisan. I think consumers across the board will be very supportive. I think there will be some businesses that push back and there'll be some businesses that will embrace this. One of the reasons why I think some businesses will embrace this is, is these policies make it very difficult for an honest business to compete. Um, so a business that wants to do all-in pricing because they feel that's the right thing to do and that's the easiest for the consumer to understand, it's difficult for them because of the competition and, and the psychology of the consumer. Sure. Their prices appear more expensive than a, than a firm that's using trip pricing or partition pricing. So um, those honest firms, maybe small businesses, they would benefit from this because it puts everyone on a level playing field. I think there will be businesses that try to confuse the issue by kind of conflating optional fees and mandatory fees. And I think they may argue that some consumers will be worse off with this because they would like to get the cheaper price and other uh, consumers would like to get all the bells and whistles. And if we kind of charge an average price to all consumers, there'll be a bunch of consumers who are worse off. But uh, that's conflating optional fees and mandatory fees. And this ruling is about mandatory fees. Everyone has to pay them no matter what. So there isn't a case of kind of opting out of these. So I think we'll hear some. I think there'll be some businesses that will argue this is going to increase their costs and this will increase prices to consumers. I don't anticipate that would actually be the case because I think since it will make search easier for consumers and prices more transparent for consumers, I think it will lead firms to compete on more of an honest basis on actual prices and actual product quality, um, where this is a way firms can kind of implicitly increase price without it being obvious. Well, it's a fascinating issue given all the different industries it cuts across and how many people it affects. And um, uh, Vicki Morowitz from uh, Columbia Business School, thank you so much for joining Pro Se and talking us through it. Uh, really greatly appreciated the conversation. Thank you, it's my pleasure. We like to end our show with an offbeat legal story. And Alex, I have a fun one for us combining two of my favorite things. Since I'm a guest host on this one, I'm bringing this one and I hope you like it. It combines the U.S. Supreme Court and National Public Radio. Alex, I got a question for you. You a big NPR guy? Um, I definitely was like in college and then a few years out of college. I don't I think like the more niche podcast market has kind of like 
crushed the the appeal of I used to be a big all things considered guy, big uh, uh, This American Life, of course, and a couple of those programs. But um, but I do support the work of NPR as a as a general matter. They 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 do good work over there. I have a tote bag laying around here somewhere. I try and no, contribute you, every once in a you, while. You were an NPR tote bag guy. I never would have. I never would have thought. I was a former NPR intern. At I did one know point that about you. Yes. In shout out to WHYY Philadelphia. Anyways, um, are you familiar with the program? Wait, wait, don't tell me. Of course. I gotta say, I when we were talking about this at the production meeting yesterday, I really did bristle at this because I really don't enjoy talking about other podcasts on our podcast. Uh, although they're like technically a radio show that gets turned into a podcast. So I will allow it. Uh, this is a very fun story, though. Yeah, th- it, this is the long running Saturday NPR comedy program, which is taped in Chicago, actually. Uh, I'll be driving around on a Saturday, going to the grocery store or something. And I'll flip this on and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Um, but, the, but the point of the, of the show is they invite special guests who must correctly answer two out of three pretty quirky questions in order to win a prize for a listener. And this weekend's guest was U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelegar. It's a big get for them. And again, my, I, I hate to keep going back to the well here, but my pettiness is getting the best of me. Because if Elizabeth Prelegar is going to go on radio shows and podcasts, then, I mean, she should come on Pro Se, and I'm angry about that. But um, it was... Frankly, uh, I've never have thought to reach out to her. I figured well, she I was too busy. I wouldn't have thought... Exactly. I honestly wouldn't have even thought to. But anyway, we can take that as a... Uh, as a marker going forward. She's a good get. I mean, she obviously has experience speaking in front of people uh, and making, you know, convincing arguments in a very tense court situation. But this is a comedy program and a, and a quiz show of a certain type. You want to give us the uh, the high points here? Yeah, it was nice to hear her out of her element for once. Um, but it was a pretty quick 10-minute segment. It started with a little interview by the show's co-host, Peter Sagal. Uh, she grew up in Idaho, and um, a fun fact about her is that she was actually a former beauty pageant star who eventually became Miss Idaho uh, many years ago before she became the government's top lawyer. Uh, so they talked about that a little bit. Uh, Sagal actually asked how people refer to her when she goes back to Idaho. Is it Solicitor General or is it Miss Idaho? And she said it's General Idaho. And that got a <laughs> lot of laughs. Um, she talked about preparing for oral arguments and how she really tries to anticipate the justice questions so she's never caught off guard. And that prompted a little discussion just about how she prepped for uh, the game show that she was appearing on. Kind of a funny little back and forth. Uh, So take a listen to that clip. All right, wait a minute. So now I got to ask, because you always seem so well prepared in front of the Supreme Court, have you been, did you send out your staff saying, I want you to figure out whatever the hell they're going to ask me. I want you to work on all the options. Like, my name's Elizabeth. They're going to ask me about Elizabeth the Great. They're going to ask me about Elizabeth Perkins. I want you all to work. Did you do any preparation? So uh, a colleague told me today, he said, I think I figured it out. They're probably going to ask you something about generals and military or something about courts, like tennis courts and basketball courts, or maybe about the act of soliciting. And I thought, oh, please, not that. (laughs) Did I get it? (laughs) Well, I think it's time to find out, don't you? I got to say, she's pretty quick on her feet, which makes sense for her profession. But she was she was bantering. These are professional comedy podcasters here. Uh, she she also earlier in the segment made a really funny joke about the through line between 
being a beauty contestant and being the Solicitor General is appearing before judges. These yeah. are these are good lines. <laughs> yeah, she's pretty funny. But let's get into the detail. Did she did she win the game or like what's going on? She did. She won the game. So um, as I mentioned earlier, the questions are often pretty outlandish. The category actually was about solicitation. So she did uh, uh, <laughs> anticipate it correctly, which is funny. Specifically, they asked three questions about vacuum cleaner sales tactics. So she got the first one right. She got the second one wrong. And it came down to the final question, which started uh, by describing stubborn and persistent vacuum cleaner salesmen in the 1930s and 40s. And they asked her which of these was a real product that was sold at the time to repel these salesmen. Was it a coin-operated doorbell, a sticky welcome mat trap, or an electric prod? So let's take a listen. This one, I think I'm going to go A, unless that one's not right. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. A good lawyer. Wait a minute. Are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to say, uh, you you know, Your Honor, I would like to advance this argument, and if you don't buy that, I've got another. I do that all the time. Do you really? (laughs) I have arguments in the alternative up my sleeve. Okay. Sagal clearly showing himself not to be a veteran of, of legal journalism. That's not his job. But uh, yeah, I mean, that is like exactly what lawyers are like always doing. You don't like that argument? I got another one for you. Well, and she is. I, I've listened to quite a few Supreme Court arguments, and she is very good at that about I think you should do it this way. And if not that way, then you should do this, this, this or this. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me give you all the options. So yeah, that made me laugh. Very savvy lawyer. Um, so she won the game for the listener. The prize was actually a personal voicemail greeting message by an NPR broadcaster. <laughs> um, and I'm sure that it was a nice break for the Solicitor General before she heads back to uh, court. Uh, she has a big argument at the end of this month, uh, a First Amendment question uh, in a social media case. So uh, nice little break from her and uh, nice to hear her in a, in a different setting there. Yeah, it was a fun listen. I will say, I thought uh, I thought those questions were uh, somewhat softball-y. I listened to the segment before we uh, hopped on here. I got all three of them right. Does that mean I should be the Solicitor General? I don't really know. I think the criteria should be more rigorous, but I'm just throwing out ideas here. I mean, you are quick on your feet. You're a former beauty pageant contestant yourself. Mr. <laughs> Illinois, I thought, wasn't it at one point? No, however, I was oh. uh, twice in a row. I was first runner-up at Mr. Hoffman Hawk at my high school. Uh, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm dead serious about that. Uh, and I'm very proud of that work. I got free prom tickets out of it. Gratis. Anyway, this is certainly already going way too <laughs> Far into the. How do we get on to me here, Steve? You, this is you got to you got to tighten hey, up your hosting. It's your show. You said you wanted to do a Mike Francesca bit, so uh, this is your time. That is definitely accurate. Um, but we should definitely probably leave it there, Steve. Um, I thought you did great, man. I'm not going to give you your performance review here on the air, but uh, awesome job uh, and and such a treat to uh, to pod with you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being on the show with you as always. And we have many other people to thank for helping us bring Pro Se to life. That includes our producers, Kelly Marcano, co-host Stephen Trader, and producer Stephen Trader in all his, uh, all his capacities. We also want to thank our guest, Vicki Morowitz from the Columbia Business School, and our contributing reporters this week, Jessica Corso, Katrina Pereira, and Jeff Overly. Music from the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. 
If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can find us. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, just head to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week.